G'day Sports by Fry fans, thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Sports by Fry podcast. Wednesday evening I'm coming at you with the latest SBF pod. Plenty of stuff to unpack today, once again diving into all three major sports by sports, the NBA, the AFL, of course from a fantasy perspective, and the NFL. Trades are the flavour of today, I'm going to go through and tease one of the articles I got in the works talking about some NBA players who are most likely to get dealt before the deadline. Then I'm going to talk into AFL fantasy terms, teasing a little bit on uh, my fantasy team 2.0, the large fries and coke are making plenty of changes. And I finished my deck of dream team commitments. So I'm going to talk a little bit about all seven blokes that I discussed for the traders or the dream team talk boys this preseason. Finally, just to wrap things up, I'll talk about some of the quarterbacks because in the NFL, we're set for some serious turnover under centre. So I'll talk a little bit about some of the more popular players, where I think they should land, and what some of the more mainstream teams should do with their fluctuation under centre. But without further ado, let's dive into today's episode. I don't know about you guys, but there's probably nothing that I enjoy more than making fake NBA trades. So we're now nearly a month from the NBA trade deadline. March 25th is when the deadline will hit, which is a little bit uh, later than usual, but just over five weeks before that deadline does occur. So I wouldn't be surprised if we start to see some ramping up in the trade market. Obviously, if you're listening to this, you probably know that Andre Drummond and Blake Griffin have both been benched with the idea of the Cleveland Cavaliers and the Detroit Pistons respectively finding a trade for those blokes. But I think we're in for a bit of a lull and a bit of a boring deadline, to be honest. There's not as many sellers at the moment. When you jump through the standings, and now especially when you consider that there's an extra two play-in spots in each conference, there aren't many teams that are really out of the race. I mean, when you look at the East, the Pistons at the bottom are technically only three games back from the playoffs, which is absurd to think. Winners are their last two. Shout out to Detroit. But in the West, it's a very similar situation. OKC, who has the second worst record right now, is only one game behind Dallas, who is sitting in that 10th slot. So they would be in the play-in game mix. So I wouldn't be surprised if there weren't as many sellers heading in to the trade period or the busy trade rumour mill season. But there are some veterans and some other, I guess, under-the-radar types that I think could make a difference if they kind of swap teams. I don't think we're going to get any DeMarta Rosens or Bradley Beals switching teams. Stranger things have happened, and those big dogs could get moved. But I think maybe with the exception of someone like Nikola Vucevic, I don't think we're going to get any stars, per se, uh, changing uniforms. But there are, like I said, some serviceable vets out there who could toggle jerseys. JJ Reddick's the first one that I want to talk about. Currently, he's set to make 13 mil this year, so his contract is a little bit more inflated than I thought, to be honest, which may make a deal very unlikely for some of the teams that he'd be best suited for. Personally, I want him to go back to the Sixers. I think that he would be great playing off Ben and Joel and giving them another lethal shooting threat, but Philadelphia might have to opt for someone a bit cheaper because they've got some pretty top-heavy contracts on that Sixers roster with obviously Ben and Joel, Tobias Harris. I think Danny Green's making about $14 million. Maybe they could do a straight swap for the uh, three-time champ and he could go to the Pels or onto a third team. But 
I don't know if they're really in the mix. The Brooklyn Nets you could probably put in a similar basket. The Boston Celtics might make sense. They're someone who I've kind of coupled with about half the blokes in this trade candidate list because their depth is a bit of an issue at the moment. I've said on a couple of Sunday sit-downs in a row that I want to see them make a move. I haven't been able to pinpoint exactly what that move is, though. Maybe they'll make a move for Redick. They could be in the market for someone of a bit higher calibre, someone potentially like Aaron Gordon. He might be the biggest name, which is sad to say, that does get traded, and he does still have another year after this season remaining on his deal. He's going to make 18 mil this year, and then his contract actually depreciates, and he goes down to 16 mil. So someone like Boston or maybe another contending team could try and get that bloke, but he has kind of regressed a little bit in the last few years. Only two or three years ago when he was dominating the dunk contest, Gordon was averaging closer to 20 points, 17, 18 a game, something of the sorts. Before he hurt his ankle, though, he was only putting up close to 13 or 14. Maybe part of that is because of the Magic struggles, and I don't know how much Aaron Gorder does offer in a trade market, but in the article that I'm going to publish probably tomorrow at this rate, if you listen to this uh, Thursday morning, then make sure you check out for it later on in the day. But I really do think that someone like the Warriors, maybe even the Denver Nuggets could look at adding Gordon. If they could put a mix of Gordon, Jokic, and then Mike Port Jr. out there, and then Paul Millsap, obviously he's not getting any younger. That might give another string into their bow. And imagine watching Aaron Gordon play for a really solid playoff team and scorch second units. I think that's probably where his best situation lies. Another under-the-radar target in PJ Tucker. He's probably the most likely bloke that I'm going to talk about tonight that's going to get traded. His contract expires at the end of the year. He's only making 7 mil this season. So, again, I don't want to tie everyone to the Celtics, but they could use his depth. The Clippers might actually make the most sense for PJ Tucker as well. I don't think he's destined to stay on the Rockets. Kind of surprised me to find out that PJ Tucker's 35, so... A team that does try to snaffle up Tucker, obviously probably doesn't have him in their long-term plans. It would be for a championship push or at least a deep playoff push this year. Doesn't really make a lot of sense for Brooklyn or Milwaukee. I don't really see the fit with Tucker next to Brooklyn's three-headed monster. Maybe he could look at going to somewhere like Portland, who's been ravaged by injuries pretty recently. But I think that he's definitely someone that will get flipped. It's just a matter of trying to pinpoint exactly where he'll land. He still offers some value. We've seen him play as a small ball center for Houston, and he's arguably the best three-point shooter from the corners in the NBA. So maybe even the Golden State Warriors again could try and add him as a bit of depth for their championship push, or at least, like I said, a deep playoff run. It's a little bit sad to say, but Blake Griffin at $36 million this year probably won't find a new home. Unless, of course, he goes through a buyout situation. He is set to have a player option for $38.9 million next year, so no one's really going to cough up for Blake. Hasn't had a dunk in over a year or something absurd. Looks like a shell of the former player that was putting up all NBA numbers just 18, 24 months ago. So what contender would really want to sacrifice a lot of contracts and potentially assets to snag Blake? There's not really anyone that's crying out for him. I mean, the Charlotte Hornets technically do have the contracts that could maybe match a deal, but I don't really know unless it's a team kind of in the bottom half of the playoff mix. Don't really have the Phoenix Suns in that picture. Maybe the Pels, but that kind of feels a bit gross and weird. So a buyout might have to be the only way that Blake switches clubs 
before the deadline or at least throughout this season. Maybe he'll get a buyout and then just go back and the biggest middle finger possible to the Clippers, sign with the Los Angeles Lakers. You never know. Stranger things, once again, have happened. Speaking of the Clippers, uh, Lou Will has started to play himself into a bit of form recently. He struggled to start the year. Another dude, yet again, on an expiring deal. I think where Lou Will's value really lies in the trade market is what the Clippers could get in return for him. They forked out, obviously, a lot of their first-round draft capital to secure Paul George a couple of off-seasons back. But if they could try and finagle a deal, maybe they could look for an upgrade at point guard. Pat Beverly's not exactly getting it done, and Lou Will and he are both getting into the latter years of their career. Maybe they could be a team that dives in and grabs someone like Kyle Lowry. Obviously, he's making much more than Lou Williams this year, so they'd have to do some serious cap work there. Lonzo Ball is a name that's also been floated already this offset or throughout the season as a potential trade dude. The Pelicans, maybe three weeks ago now, maybe a bit longer, said that they were potentially open to trading Lonzo Ball. So they've got some young guards, and it could be nice if Lou Will goes to the Pels and helps tries to veteran, use his veteran presence to mentor the dudes like Kyra Lewis, Nikhil Alexander-Walker. But again, don't really know what team would want to go and grab Lou Will off LA. The Sixers and the Suns both actually suck when it comes to bench scoring, so maybe they could be swayed to add the veteran, and he's definitely proven his ilk in the playoffs, and he's a bonafide star when it comes to coming off the bench, so Lou Will might be able to just swing a couple of games in a playoff series, and for that situation, like I said, the Sixers, the Suns, maybe the Raptors, maybe the Pels, one of those teams might bite on the idea of landing Lou Will. Last bloke that I want to discuss, again, there's 10 in the article, I'm just talking about half a dozen or so, but George Hill has started to play himself into uh, trade candidacy. He is actually injured at the moment, so he's not doing any playing, but before he busted his finger, he was looking pretty solid for OKC. He was a very solid, established veteran presence on that somewhat successful Thunder team, and he still has something left in the tank to contribute to a winning club. It's just a matter, once again, of which club wants to try and make a move for him. We know OKC will happily deal anyone away if it means they can get future picks or other assets. And in another perk, George Hill's contract for next year is only partially guaranteed. So he's making about 9 mil this year, slated to make 10 mil next year, but I can't see that getting fully guaranteed. So if the Thunder do want to try and flip George Hill and someone comes calling, maybe the Dallas Mavericks. They're someone that I haven't talked about a lot in this trade market, but again, their depth has been something that's been addressed on the Sports by Fry podcast quite a bit recently, so they're a potential candidate. The worry is it doesn't really feel like the right mix. Portland has good guards, and CJ McCollum, even though he is hurt right now, will be back before the postseason, so Hill doesn't offer a ton of value in that category. The Brooklyn Nets, now that Spencer Dinwiddie is out for the rest of the season. Maybe they're someone that would want to try and just pry George Hill away, at least for the rest of the 2021 run. But I do wonder just how much George Hill has to offer outside of this potential season. So he's probably not going to get snapped up by someone who is just going to meddle around in the bottom part of the playoff mix. It's probably likely going to be a contender that bites on George Hill. Again, that trade article will get published on Thursday at this rate, potentially early uh, Friday morning. But... If everything lines up, then it'll be out probably after you're listening to this podcast. There's probably going to be, I'm using probably a lot, not a lot of action once again. Stick to the rumour mill though. Again, 
we might see some big dogs moved. Vucevic is someone who's starting to get a lot of work in the ESPN trade machine. I don't see the Spurs flipping either DeMar DeRozan or LaMarcus Aldridge. And Brad Beal seems pretty content to stay in Washington. So these under-the-radar guys are really going to be the important ones in the trade market. They might even swing a potential playoff series or something of the sort and prove to be real difference makers come postseason time. Diving into some AFL fantasy talk, I want to kind of unpack each of the players I talked about in the deck of DT. But before I do that, I'm just going to tease a couple of changes that I made a little bit to my team. Since I posted my first edition of the large fries and coke, I've made some pretty significant moves. Who hasn't, right? It's the off-season. Everyone's probably changing their team once or twice a day, if not more frequently. Rory Laird has come into the large fries and coke pretty convincingly as well. I'm happy to keep Laird, especially now that Lockie Whitfield is seemingly out for at least the rest of the preseason, so he'll probably be underdone if he does get named round one. I didn't actually have Whitfield to start last season, and that proved to be a bit of a masterstroke. I do wonder how much value Jake Lloyd has. He's averaged, uh, priced at an average of 111. Can he do that again? possibly, but that was obviously an adjusted average from shortened quarters, so I don't have a ton of faith in him doing that. If Rory Laird does get the slated midfield time that we expect, I talked in my realistic goals about how dominant he was in the back half of the year for Adelaide last season, so I expect him to probably be in the mix and closer to the pill for the Crows this year, and if that's the case, then fantasy numbers will obviously follow. I do wonder how the rest of my backline is going to be structured, though. Sam Doherty is someone that I've had in and out, but at the moment, I've chopped both Doherty and my other D3 out so that I can put in Wayne Miller and James Harms. That has helped me save a bit of money to make some other moves elsewhere, and I'm going to talk about why I needed more money a bit later in the pod. But I think that going for a little bit of that mid-price tactic really is going to be the way to start your fantasy side this year, especially the way that all these averages are inflated after the adjusted season with shortened quarters in 2020. Someone who's made his way into my midfield is Sammy Walsh, who I'm pretty high on at the moment. I have had guys like Hugh McCluggage sitting there. Nat Fife, I think, has been in a couple of screenshots. Tim Taranto was there because I had Josh Kelly and Trelaw. Now I've pushed Taranto up to M2. He won't be going anywhere, but Walsh is someone that I'm pretty keen on starting with at the moment. I'm pretty set, well, I don't want to say set in stone, but pretty happy with the way that my midfield looks. A bit will come down to who fills that last midfield on field spot because at the moment Tommy Powell is there. If he's not named round one, I probably won't pick him. But Ben Cunnington, Walshie, Matty Rao, Jackson Haitley, Trelaw, Tim Taranto, and of course Will Phillips, the North draftee, all interest me this season to start. And I probably will do the least amount of changing to my midfield. The ruck department has been thrown into flux a little bit after news broke that Braden Pruce is dealing with a shoulder injury. And now Rowan Marshall seems to have hurt his foot and won't be healthy by the start of the fantasy season. So a lot of coaches are now coughing up for Max Gorm. There is someone that you might want to consider other than Gorm. And ironically, I actually wrote about him for the Drek of Deem Team Boys. So I'll talk about him in a couple of minutes. Going into my forward line, I've chopped out Josh Dunkley. I don't have any qualms in trusting Adzi Trelaw. I think he's going to be great. I don't think Jack McRae's numbers are going to dip a lot. He's a fantasy star and arguably the best accumulator in the AFL. But the forwards obviously are a little bit all over the shop and I can't really justify paying up for dunks. At the moment, I've got a pretty lean forward line. I've got Tom Phillips moving up to that first forward spot with Rosie and Jaden Stevenson doing their best to fly the flag 
for the forward line boys. We are going to be in for a bit of carnage and a bit of changeover, I think, over the next month before lockout happens. And a bit might come down to who else gets injured and how people perform throughout the preseason. Pretty happy with the mix that I got at the moment, though. Not going to lie. All right, deck of DT time. This morning, I dropped my final card in the deck of Dream Team. I talked about Nat Fife. Now, obviously, the big appeal in Nat Fife's fantasy game this year is that potential forward status. But I don't know about you, but when you open your AFL app or you open the fantasy website, he doesn't yet have forward status. As soon as he does, I think he'll probably end the year in more fantasy teams than he's ever done before, but he doesn't have the greatest track record when it comes to really elite fantasy numbers. He's priced at 94, went at an average of 75 last year, and obviously that got tweaked, but he's only had two seasons of 105 twice before, both years he won the Brownlow, and then he's only had two other years where he's topped 100. He's had plenty where he's been in the high 90s and something like that. And that high 90s number is probably his ceiling if he does reside closer to goal for the Dockers this year. I view him as a beautiful upgrade target throughout the year, but starting with him probably isn't a wise manoeuvre. I've coupled these two together because in back-to-back -back days, about a week ago, I talked about Will Phillips and Tommy Powell, the number three and number 13 picks from last year's draft are definitely going to get some games time this year. And North Melbourne's midfield is drawing a lot of interest from coaches. I think personally I've got four North blokes in my midfield at the moment, and that's not including guys like Luke Davies-Uniac. Uh, I'm trying to think who else is relevant from North. Nah, that's about it. <laughs> Betty Cunnington, he's sitting in the midfield slot as well. But the rookies are the ones that really interest me. Phillips seems pretty poised for a round one debut. He's a pretty complete midfielder, doesn't have a lot of holes in his game. He is a little bit small, but the way he goes about his business, he kind of reminds me a little of Sam Walsh. I don't think Phillips will score as well as Walsh did when he started his AFL career, but I don't expect Phillips to struggle. He may go down as the uh, best cash cow slash rookie that we have available this season. Tommy Powell, obviously, his situation's a little bit different. Last year, he did get to play plenty of footy, but it was at the under-18 level. So even though he was going up against dudes the same age as him, he dominated the field. He won the best and fairest award for the association. He went on to average 33 touches as well. So there's plenty of upside to picking both Powell and Phillips. Can I see them named next to each other in round one? Very possibly. Do I think it'll happen though? Probably not. However, as soon as one of them gets named, whether that's round one, they're both there round two, Tommy Powell gets his debut in round eight and Phillips is named in round three, whatever. As soon as they come in, I'll be picking them in AFL Fantasy. The next bloke I'm going to talk about pretty much picks himself. Hayden Young has been <laughs> talked about quite a bit during this preseason. I swear it's not because I've got Fremantle bias. He's got a break even of 44. Never got the opportunity to really put his rookie season together and put a lot of points on the board. But trust me, you don't want to miss the boat on this bloke. He's a lethal kick. He's probably the bloke that I wanted for Rio to grab at pick seven more than anyone else in the field in the 2019 draft class. So as a Dockers fan, I'm pretty stoked to see what he's got up his sleeve. There are some slight concerns over the other dudes that are in Frio's back line. Luke Ryan loves a plus six. Nathan Wilson obviously will hog a little bit of the footy himself as well. Blakey Akers might eat into some of that potential wing role that we thought Hayden Young might get. He may get it in years to come, but this year I think Youngie will probably reside as a really permanent member of Frio's back six. 
Might hurt his case if we do suffer some... I hate when fans say we when it's talking about clubs, so I promise I won't try to do it too often. But if Fremantle suffers some injuries, like they saw last year with Pierce and Hamling going down, maybe Young will be forced to play a bit more of a lockdown role. He's still got enough talents, though, I think, to be much better than the 44 he's priced at. At worst, probably go to 60, but I think an average in the 70s is highly likely. Here we go, Maximus gone. Let's unpack this situation. His break-even is 123. At the moment, he's going to cost you 944 grand, which is a huge price to pay up if you want to start the year with him. However, with these other ruck targets starting to crumble around him, Proust is now hurt. Obviously, Jared Witz is a hard bloke to trust. Raleigh O'Brien, you're not too sure what you want to get with. I think a lot of coaches are just going to pick Gorn and Grundy and not look back. Just before I started recording this, I saw that Warney tweeted out saying that if you do pick Gorn and Grundy, that combination costs you nearly 14% of your entire salary cap. Is it worth it? That is the big question, isn't it? Personally, the reason I've done some of that shuffling, like I said, talking about axing Doherty and Dunkley and stuff, is because I have put Max Gorn into my lineup. I don't know if he's going to start the year there, though, because I'm pretty high on Riley O'Brien for nearly 100 grand less, and Jared Witts of the break-even of 81, isn't a terrible pick, and he's 300 grand cheaper than Max Gorn. So that's some significant dough that you could utilize elsewhere around the ground. I guess it comes down to a little bit of a personal preference, and if you can squeeze both those guys into your ruck department, maybe you're rocking with something like Maxi Gorn and then Nick Natanui, or Toby Nankervis is another ruck that's been mentioned a few times this preseason. Timmy English or Steph Martin, if one of them really interests you. Don't know why, but each to their own. So I can see the appeal in picking Gorn. Is it worth coughing up that much money? I wish I had the answer for you. Speaking of coughing up a lot of money, I don't think many coaches will be starting the year with Paddy Dangerfield. 780 grand isn't a terrible price to pay for Danger at a break-even of 102, but his injury-interrupted preseason really does worry me. I expect him to top 100-plus again. I think he's done so for six or seven straight years now. And similar to Fife, I do view Dangerfield as a perfect upgrade target once he's got a bit of a clean bill of health. Maybe you'll pick someone like Tom Phillips. He won't really bang and start the year on fire, so you could potentially get an undervalued Dangerfield by not swapping over too much coin. I don't know. Picking Danger at the start of the year, though, it scares me off a little bit. I can see why coaches would do it, and if he does play in the Amy Community Series and is named round one, I think I saw something earlier today about Mitch Duncan dealing with his own injury issues. Danger will still get a lot of midfield time, but... Picking him for the start of the season comes with plenty of risk. And to be honest, it's too much risk for me to get involved. Jamara Hagen is the last bloke. I was all in on him earlier this preseason, and there's plenty of value that lies given his starting price of 270k. There hasn't really been a lot of buzz or any reports out of training camp, and I don't think that that's a terrible thing for Hagen. I do expect him to play round one for the Dogs, and... I think I've said this before, but he'll probably play a bit of a similar purpose for fantasy coaches as what Max King did last season. Comes at a hundred grand or more than King, but I don't think that that's too much dough to cough up for Jamari Eugle Hagen. He should comfortably average near the 60 mark and play most games. So if you pick him, obviously as the buys hit, it's nice to have as many blokes playing as possible. Once the buys pass, though, if you're in a luxurious position, maybe you can chop him out. 
And if panic hits and injury strikes, then at least you've still got someone playing games. So I view him as a really safe pick. Might not have the best fantasy numbers, but somewhere in the 60s mark is where I expect Hugo Hagen to score. Wrapping up with a little bit of NFL talk, like I said, on Monday I dropped my uh, big, big article, about 3,000 words went into it, talking about every NFL team and their quarterback situation. I found that there was 11 teams who were pretty much set in stone to run it back. They weren't even going to consider a change of quarterback. But there was also 11 teams who I expected to have a completely different QB room entering the 2021 season. The biggest name at the moment on the trade block is obviously Deshaun Watson. and Where he lands will dictate a lot of the other dominoes that fall, I think. From a Texan standpoint, I can understand why they want to do everything possible to keep that bloke in uniform. I mean, there's not a lot of other AFL, not a lot of other athletes, period. He's not an AFL athlete for I, but there's not a lot of other athletes in the world that get compared to Michael Jordan, but some of the shit that Watson does is pretty breathtaking. I can see, once again, why the Texans would want to hold that bloke, but it makes sense for them to trade him. I know JJ Watt just got released over this uh, past weekend. There's a whole new influx of front office and GM and head coach guys that are coming in for the Texans. So keeping him does seem like the smart decision on paper. But what kind of a message is that sending? He's requested a trade. You might be able to play hardball and be like, no, you're not going anywhere. You just signed an extension. Suck it up. But that's not going to probably end well. And again, we'll probably end in him keep continually requesting a trade and eventually ending up somewhere else. The big thing for Houston does kind of lie in what their return is. The New York Jets and the Miami Dolphins are the two teams that have been linked with Watson the most recently, and it's no coincidence that they have the number two and number three pick in the upcoming draft. In fact, Miami actually holds a lot of Houston's picks in the draft. The number three pick was originally meant to belong to the Texans, but they gave it up in a trade with Miami a couple of years back. So if Houston can recoup some of that draft capital, if they could get the two or three pick and then maybe even use one of them to invest in a young quarterback, I think it's smart for the Texans to start from the bottom and build it up. There's not a lot of talent on their offensive line. There's not a lot of talent when it comes to their skill position guys. Obviously, they got rid of DeAndre Hopkins last offseason. So even if they do bring Watson back, what's he really coming back to? The bit of a shell of a roster, if you ask me. So if they can get potentially four or even something absurd like five or six first-round picks, maybe a mix of two or three picks, and a couple of young dudes out of a team that's willing to put that godfather offer on the table. It's going to be a tough pill to swallow, but it makes sense for the Houston Texans to say goodbye to Deshaun Watson. Now, I want to quickly talk about the New York Jets and the Miami Dolphins, because I think it's wise for one of those teams to go for it, and one of those teams to pull the pin on a Watson deal. Obviously, the Jets have a very bare cupboard when it comes to their franchise, when it their skilled players aren't exactly that skilled. Sam Darnold is currently their quarterback, and he is someone I expect to end up somewhere else, but he probably won't get a starting gig. If they do land Deshaun Watson, he's almost in a very similar situation to what he would be at the Houston Texans. There's not a talented offensive line. Their defense has a lot of question marks. Their wide receivers aren't super great. Neither are their running backs. Neither are their tight ends. So why would... The Houston Texans, why would the New York Jets rather make a move for Deshaun Watson? The reason they would do that is because then they have something to build around. Miami's already got that piece in Tua Tagovailoa. I think it's wise for the Dolphins to build with Tua, but 
if they could get Watson, makes sense, obviously, but it makes super sense for the New York Jets to overpay whatever they have to do so they have that cornerstone for their franchise. They've been a laughing stock for the last 20, 30-odd years. The Dolphins actually have the majority of the pieces together. If they put Watson into it, I don't know really how much he's going to elevate them over the top, for lack of a better term. Tua Tagovailoa could develop into a great quarterback, and then all of a sudden they didn't have to give up four future first-rounders and they can use those picks to continue to build a winner. They made the playoffs last year. No, wait, did the Dolphins? Can't remember. Anyway, no, oh no. Sorry, Miami fans. That's right. They lost in uh, pretty heartbreaking fashion late in the year and then missed out. But they were right in the mix. Their defense is really good. Brian Flores coaches them really hard. They're a pretty good unit. And I expect them once again to be in the playoff mix this year. The Jets, however... And they have nothing at the moment. If they use the pick number two to draft, say, Justin Fields or Mac Wilson or some of these other quarterback prospects, it's really not going to be any different to when they had Sam Darnold in the same situation about three years ago. So if I'm running the Jets, I think it makes a ton of sense for them just to cough up, even if it does take four first-round picks, because they've got future assets down the line. You can sign other free agents and bring in outside help. And obviously, Deshaun Watson really likes the idea of playing with Robert Sala. So if he, he is invested in the New York Jets, that's only a good thing for the Jets. Again, I can see why the Dolphins would be tempted to make this deal, but they've got the majority of the pieces in place. Could Watson take them over the top? Maybe, but Tua could also do that. From the Jets' perspective, though, their cupboard is very bare. They need to get to Sean Watson. All right, enough about talking about those three teams. Another quarterback who seems destined to find a new home is Carson Wentz. He's been linked quite heavily to the Indianapolis Colts, and I'd be surprised if that wasn't a trade that does come to fruition. Indianapolis is in win-now mode. They've got some other talent across their roster. T.Y. Hilton put up an inconsistent year last year, but he has now got some other dudes like Michael Pittman Jr. in the passing game that can help complement him. Jonathan Taylor was probably a look-in for the offensive rookie of the year. So it makes sense for the Colts to go and get an established veteran. Maybe they are more interested in grabbing someone like Matt Ryan or Teddy Bridgewater, but I think A... Ryan is probably a little bit too old now, and B, Bridgewater probably isn't a great enough quarterback to take them over the edge. Carson Wentz, though, before he did his ACL, when Philadelphia was storming towards an undefeated season, he was looking like the MVP of the league. He's looked anything but that in the last few years, and part of that, I think, really does come down to his confidence. They obviously have been linked, those two parties, Wentz and the Colts, for a little bit now, so I think it makes sense for a trade to get pushed through. There's some rumours that Philadelphia wants to keep Carson Wentz and get him competing against Jalen Hurts and trying to get a really good quarterback competition going, and I don't think that's a smart route for Philadelphia. Even if you can't get a ton for Wentz in return, you got Jalen Hurts. He looks great. He looked really good in the last four or three and a half games that he played for the Eagles, so building around him makes tons of sense, and if you can get any assets by dealing Wentz away, I reckon they should pull the trigger. Couple more teams before I wrap this up. The San Francisco 49ers are in a weird situation. They made the Super Bowl, not the one just gone, but the one previously to that, 12 months ago. But Jimmy Garoppolo hasn't really convinced them that he's their answer at quarterback. I think that he's getting a little bit of a raw deal because he's been pretty successful since joining San Fran and obviously took them to a Super Bowl, even if you have some concerns over his legitimate quarterbacking ability. Garoppolo has done pretty well 
for the Niners. And I think trying to deal him away potentially for someone like I've already talked about, a Wentz, Matty Ryan type or something like that isn't a huge upgrade, to be honest. I think they're best served in grabbing one of these other underperforming rookies or another young guy looking for a fresh start. Sam Darnold would be the perfect addition to the 49ers quarterback room. That way, you can still trust Garoppolo, who has been pretty injury-prone, so if he does go down again, at least they have a decent backup in place. Mitchell Trubisky is someone that's copped a lot of shit for his performances in the last few years, but a change of scenery might just help him kickstart his career as well. Marcus Mariota's just served a year as a backup on the Oakland Raiders, so one of those type of dudes, a high draft pick who maybe needs a new scenario to reignite his career, is probably the only thing I think the Niners should do at quarterback. I can see the appeal in, you know, the brand new shiny guy from left field that's not Jimmy G, but unless they're getting a slew of picks and other assets in a Garoppolo trade, I think grabbing a dude to give him some competition for the starting role isn't a bad thing, but they shouldn't overreact and go out balls to the walls and make a huge deal. Last up is the New England Patriots, who, similar to the Texans and Jets, actually really don't like their roster. So it's wise from a New England perspective for them to invest once again in the draft. Their supporting cast was not the reason, but it certainly was a reason for Tom Brady wanting out last offseason. So I don't think, again, plugging in a... I don't know why I keep using Matt Ryan's name, but he's the name sitting in front of me on this dock. So Matty Ryan... Teddy Bridgewater again, Sam Darnold, Jimmy Garoppolo. None of those dudes are really going to save the day for New England. So they have to kind of build it back from the ground up. We've seen Bill Belichick do it before. Granted, it was with the greatest quarterback of all time, but the Pats are a successful franchise. I think with Bill Belichick still calling the shots, they have pick 15. That might not be a great enough pick to snag a guy that they really have their sights set on. Maybe they'll want to try and move up into the top 10 to get someone who slides. And if there's a prospect they like the looks of, that's the route I'd go down for New England. Obviously, the Cam Newton experiment last year really did explode in their face, so they can't bring him back. Jared Stidham didn't even start considering how bad Newton was going, so he obviously isn't the long-term answer either. Getting another young dude into the mix, someone from the draft that you can really build around and you can start to instill those Patriot ways and those other bits and pieces that saw New England make a shitload of Super Bowls. That's the route I think they should go down. And that is another Sports by Fry podcast in the books. Thanks again for tuning in. Like I said, a lot of trade talk, a bit of fantasy stuff, but I have left some fantasy things on the docket for the Fantasy Friday. I'll be going through doing the NBA ad drop watch, etc. And I am going to identify a couple of fantasy trade targets that you should look at. At this stage, I'm planning on recording the pod Friday morning. Might not be out till later in the day, but I will in that same episode be talking about the defenders from an AFL fantasy perspective, the big dogs, the value picks, and then the rookies and cash cows. Make sure you check out the NBA trade article that I've alluded to about seven times in this podcast. The Dream Team boys obviously did their righty by me and allowed me to spew some of my words onto their website as well. So if you want a little bit more info on the Nat Five, Maxi Gone, Paddy Dangerfield, all those North draftees, etc., make sure you visit their website as well. But thanks once again for tuning into this episode. Till next time, peace.